Hello, hello. Welcome to Inside Out. It's your girl, Jane Z. I've always been drawn to people who grew up in different places, especially different countries with completely different languages and cultures. For my own part, I was born in Hangzhou, China, and my parents and I immigrated to Canada when I was four. Luckily, I was young enough then to pick up English pretty quickly and assimilate into this strange new world where it snowed and kids ate dunkaroos, but you learn how to become a sponge and adapt quickly to what's expected of you, whether it's picking up the right lingo or hustling to get a work visa. Today's guest, Maria Eilerson, is no stranger to adapting to new places. She's Danish and was born in Denmark, and throughout her life she's lived in Japan, Canada, Italy, New York, London, and now Portugal. Maria thought she wanted to become the next Anna Winter, and went into fashion journalism after her degree at NYU, realized it wasn't for her, and after a few years of straight-up hustling in startups and climbing the corporate ladder, she found herself heading up global PR at a travel company in London. But after all those years of working, she, she felt like she needed a break. So she went off to Central America for a yoga teacher training retreat, aka her eat, pray, love moment. In this episode, we talk about how that journey helped Maria see that success doesn't have to look like a perfect resume. And once you build up a specialized set of skills like PR, you can use them to work with the companies and people that you choose. Maria now teaches social entrepreneurs how to do their own PR, and today she walks us through her whole strategy. So if you are running a business or needing PR for your personal brand, you might want to take notes. We go through crafting your key messages, to reaching out to journalists, to leveraging the momentum from your press. Last but certainly not least, Maria shares some pretty creative ways that she manages her time like alternating the weeks she has coaching calls, and for us ladies in the room, how to track your period and schedule certain activities around your hormones. All that coming up. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to hit that follow button for stories from amazing people like Maria every Tuesday. And if you're listening on Apple, I would super appreciate a five-star review and any feedback you'd like to leave. Thanks so much for tuning in. Onto the show. This is Inside Out with Jane Z, the podcast that helps you build a thriving business without losing your mind. My name is Jane, and my mission is to help you build and grow your business while having time for the people and things that matter in your life. Join me every Tuesday as I sit down with an entrepreneur who's already building their dream business. We'll walk through their journey, tips for success, and how to mentally prepare for the long road ahead. Because building your dream business and dream life is the long game. And that's what we're all about right here on Inside Out. Welcome to the podcast, Maria. I think you are our first guest that's based in Portugal, if not Europe. I'm honored to take on that. <laughs> <laughs> You've been quite the globe trotter, and I'd love to start with just your travels so we can set a stage for how you think about your work and your lifestyle. Yeah, so I was born in Denmark to Danish parents, and then when I was five, my dad was offered a job 
in Japan. And so we moved to Japan, was dropped into an international school, learned English there. It was fortunate that I did it at that time because I got to read and write with everyone else. And I'm told it took me three months to learn English. I just have like random wow. sporadic memories of playing Twister and like learning left, right and colors. And like things like that. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Twister is a very educational game when you're learning to speak English, <laughs> apparently. And then when I think I was nine, when we moved back to Denmark, when we were there for two years again, I slotted back into Danish school, into my old class. And then two years later, so when I was 11, my dad then was posted to Canada. So we lived in a tiny little suburb by Canadian standards, I think by Danish standards, it's pretty big, <laughs> but a small <laughs> suburb called Oakville, lived in Fairway yes. Hills. It was like very like that suburban experience outside of Toronto. So I went to middle school there and also my first semester of high school. And then we moved back to Japan. So I finished high school in Japan and it was at an American school. And it was quite interesting having been in Canada and then going to Japan into the American mm-hmm. bubble. I mean, I was a cheerleader. We had like American football oh. team. It was like, you wow. Know, the, whole, the whole thing. And all my Danish friends were like, oh, it's like the movies. I'm like, it, it is kind of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it actually is it's a pretty accurate portrayal. But then yeah, I got back into learning Japanese as well. And it was really cool to live in Tokyo as a teenager. It's like your playground. Were your parents pretty, like, uh, they let you roam around and do your own thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe because you're European, like, mm. everyone starts clubbing pretty young in Denmark, and, like, the drinking age is lower, right. so they were like, we know you're going to do it anyway, so we'd much rather know where you're going. I feel and like so that's a way of, healthier yeah, way of going yeah, about it. Yeah, keep tabs on you, and whereas I had, like, American friends who would come and, like, sleep over, it would be for us to go out, but my parents knew where we were, so it was always, nice. it always felt, yeah. Felt safe. And I was put on the track to go to an American university, like APs, like SATs, like all that stuff. And then I was accepted to NYU. So I went to NYU and nice. did my first year in Italy, which is also like wow. part of the plan. But they were like, we don't have space in, in the New York campus. So you need to go to Paris, London, or Florence. So <laughs> for me, I have to choose between one of these places. And so I chose Italy because I couldn't see myself living there ever. So we lived on a, a huge estate that had been sold off to NYU. So I had like olive trees and like villas and wow, that's where the dorms were. And it was cool. I think it was probably a little bit wasted on a bunch of 18 year olds. Looking <laughs> back now, I'm like, that was such a stunning place to live. And we were all just, let's go drink. Let's like... <laughs> <laughs> so spoiled. Yeah, exactly. Um, had this like liberal arts college feel. And mm. then we moved to New York afterwards, which was then back into a big city. Yeah, and I was in New York for five years total. So finished my degree, worked a bit, and then moved to London when I was 24. I was there for six years. So left last year and moved to London. Yeah. So that's my travels in an abbreviated Dang. form. <laughs> that's really cool. I feel like that you got a little taste of all these places in the world growing up. And then I'm guessing living in New York after college must have felt pretty natural just in how cosmopolitan it was. Mm. Um, but what did your life look like after college? Yeah, I mean, definitely I can confirm that it felt very like <laughs> natural, like being in Tokyo and in New York even though I'm from a tiny little town in Denmark, the benefit of being in New York City was that I could start interning while I was studying. So I had been interning for a fashion blog, like fashion was the original path that I was on. I wanted to be like mm. the next Anna Wintour. I was like studying journalism yes. and wanted to go in fashion. And then I think I, I burst the bubble by being in that world so early and discovering that actually maybe it's not for me. So I continued working for 
that fashion blog. And then in order to stay in the US, I needed to find a way to get a visa. And Mm -hmm. if you're an entry level candidate applying for a visa, it was like impossible. Like I went to so many interviews and as soon as it got to the point of like, all right, well, so do you have like a green card or whatever? I'm like, nope. They'd be like, no, nope. oh, well, sorry. Like our hands are tied. So I, I mm-hmm. like pretty much felt like I learned the alphabet over again with all the visa rules because they are like listed by there. Like there's the <laughs> A and the E and the I and the whatever. And I was, I really, I want to be in New York. So I ended up getting a journalist visa because I started working as a U.S. correspondent for a Danish newspaper, but an expat newspaper. So it was in English. Hmm. So that allowed me to stay. And then I was just networking a lot. I consulted with some small startups. I was just trying to get my hands into anything that could uh-huh. potentially lead to me then shifting that visa into a full-time working visa. And then I also was interning as much as I could. So I continued working for like fashion publications, building up a freelance portfolio. That's what I thought would be the direction I wanted to go in, freelance journalism. And also because I was allowed to do that on the, on the visa. But then after two years almost out of college, not really finding a full-time role and getting that experience of being in like one office in one role, as opposed Mm -hmm. to doing a million different things part-time, I decided to move to to London or at least to give it a try. I gave myself like two months and my sister was living there at the time. And literally within three weeks, I got a job. So it was was like, what have you been waiting for? Yeah, we've been here for you. So I then moved to London and started out in a marketing agency and was dropped into the deep end as a manager because I picked up, I guess, enough experience. And I think that I'd lived in New York that really added to my CV and learned so much on the job. I was like managing their biggest account. I was learning all this stuff about advertising and marketing and stuff like that. But after six months, I realized the really heavy analytical data-driven stuff like Google ads and that kind of stuff, mm. it didn't really feel like it lit me up in the same way that writing did. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of quit on a whim and, and was looking for my, my next gig and found this amazing travel company that had a PR and communications role. And since I had this journalist background, they, they brought me in. And also, I guess, the travel background that I yeah. by, like existing. <laughs> um, I came in and I just was so fortunate to work under an incredible boss. And like all the bosses I had there were just, they were these amazing women who just, they were just like the perfect balance of support of empowering you to do it on your own, but also being available for support. That's where I just really came into my potential and discovered that PR was really exciting and fun and not very same. I'm not like a fan of routine. I think every day was pretty different. I got to travel while I was working. Within a year, I was heading up global PR. It hadn't been an area that they really invested in and I was able to grow it and they saw Mm. the value. I get to go to Ibiza for work like that. What? About that. <laughs> like some journalists sailing in Ibiza. Oh, yeah. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, this is great. Like, this is work. It was a lot of work to plan it and like the pressure of it like going well. But then once you're there, you're like, okay, worth it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, I bet. So how long were you at that company? I think it was nearly three years. So I was actually made redundant, which is the UK terminology for being laid off. They were mm. hired by Flight Center. There was a lot of restructuring and they just decided that PR was not a role that they needed anymore. I think I'd set mm. up all these agencies and they were like, it's self-sufficient. Yeah. It was like a sucker punch to have that yeah. happen. But again, yeah. I was so lucky to have such great bosses that they made it really clear. Look, this is like a board level decision and we mm-hmm. fought for you and our hands are tied and they were really, you know, 
supportive and helping me look for the next opportunity. And now looking back, it's like the best thing that could have happened because I wouldn't be where I am mm. if that hadn't happened because I was just on this path of climbing the corporate PR ladder. I could have mm. sidestepped straight into another travel role doing the same thing. But right. there was just like this voice, my intuition was just calling at me like, no, this isn't, you need a break. Because you had been do. hustling since NYU at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And it had been very much, okay, I have to go in and start my career. Like I had felt like right. I hadn't really started it, even though I was with the freelancing and the hustling and all that stuff. But I had this idea in my head of it needs to be like, mm. you go in as an intern, you become a junior and you just climb your way up. Mm -hmm. um, and that it was somehow wrong to not do it that way. But actually now looking back, I'm like, well, it's much more fun that it's this way. And I got to eliminate so many things very early on by like just trying them out. And then I, I think I just saw an ad for a yoga teacher training and I was very concerned about the gap in my CV, like typical, <laughs> right? <laughs> you're, you're younger. You're just like, Oh my God, this is like the worst thing that can mm -hmm. happen. It's I know it's like that LinkedIn anxiety of like, yeah, to look perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's been interesting. I mean, even just like side note, looking at like how the pandemic has impacted everyone, it's almost like it's normalized it a little bit because it was this like collective experience of, okay, career gaps happen. Like we're also mm -hmm. humans and like things happen. And that doesn't mean that you're like, not a qualified candidate or you're not a good worker. I feel like the yeah. whole thing has humanized our CVs a little bit, but that was why I was looking at the teacher training. Cause I was like, well, if I want to take time off, I feel like I need to justify it somehow. Mm. You need to come out with a different <laughs> skill. Like, uh, right. So funny looking back on that now, but I found this school called school yoga Institute and they had like teacher trainings all over the world. And I just saw this one in Guatemala. There was this woman sitting on this dock on Lake Atitlan and I was just like in that moment I want to be sitting on that dock like I want to go there after deciding to do that I like reached out to them they were so warm and receptive and I said oh I'm just gonna deepen my understanding of the practice I don't even know if I want to be a teacher I just feel called and they were so have supportive. you done yoga at that point um, yeah yeah so I've been okay. I've been practicing since I was like 17 my mom took me to my okay. first yoga class it's part of my life that I hadn't really given much credit to. I look back on it. I'm like, oh, wow. Yoga was always a practice that was there for me. Like when I got laid off, mm. like I turned to my yoga practice. It's given yeah. me a lot. And so going and fully immersing myself in living life in the yogic way of waking mm. up, meditating, practicing, and studying the philosophy beyond the physical practice, because that's all we see in the West. Yeah. But really right. like looking at the philosophy and the approach to living was so transformational and just being in a group of people where no one cared what you did like what your job was where you're from we just met each other as human beings which was mm. a really unique experience i just realized how yeah. much, like living in new york and london it's what's your name what do you do it yeah. got like it defined you and it made me realize how much i was chasing this idea of what i thought i should be and yeah tailoring your answer to that question yeah mm -hmm. and only going off of what you've seen as well. Throughout that experience, I remember I had no idea what I was gonna do. It was like, I have no job prospects. I like don't know how I'm gonna like cover costs when I get back home, but I was probably the happiest I've ever been. Trusting that things are gonna work out the way that they need to. I'm where I need to be. I have more than enough and enjoying that journey as well. And I solo traveled around Guatemala and Mexico afterwards. That kind of cemented it as well because I was just going where I want. I made the decision like two days in advance that I would like, okay, I'm going to go here now. I'm going to book a hostel and go there. Mm. And just letting 
life unfold and not having yeah. any expectations, you realize how much career and work you can take up so much space that you're like, I don't even know how to sit with myself or what I want, mm. what I care about. I mean, the whole eat, pray, love thing, I think it's a cliche <laughs> for a reason. I think exactly. Yep. Yeah, that came to mind. <laughs> you're totally. having a Julia Roberts yes. moment. Yes. Totally Julia Roberts <laughs> moment. And I'd recommend everyone do it. There's something about travel. I don't know. Do you feel like this when you're like, I, whenever I'm on a plane, I just feel like I mm-hmm. like, get perspective on my life. Like I take definitely. Yeah. yeah. Something about being 30,000 feet up in the air. It's like nothing else matters right yeah. now. <laughs> you're just like, and you're like, wow. You're like, and you reflect on all the things that you have to be grateful for. Mm-hmm. Cause it's this pause. You're not there. You're not here. Especially growing up as well. It was like that whenever I was flying between New York and Japan and Denmark, I just remember like those flights always being these points of reflection. Okay. I've completed another semester. Okay. Yeah. Punctuation marks in my life. Same here. I love bringing notebooks on planes because that's when I find that I have the most to write and, and journal about. Yeah. Like closing these long chapters. Yeah. or semester chapters, whatever it is. It's mm. funny when you get out of college, you're like, oh, not, life is not structured into semesters yeah. anymore. <laughs> Which sometimes I wish it was. I love the idea of having summers just be like free flowing and you have a couple months to do whatever you want. And then mm. in the fall, you're like grounded again. Yeah, I think summer does that to everyone. It is hard to have strong momentum mm-hmm. following nature's cycle. Okay, it's more time to be, play, have fun, plant seeds, yeah. like... Yeah, Artist is yeah. in the fall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, now you're in a place that's like very much summer oriented, right? But are you like in a beach town? Like where are you in Portugal? So I'm based in Lisbon right this moment. I'm actually in Copenhagen. Um, oh, I always okay. go back and, and visit family when I can. Some of oh, my good. sister's place in Copenhagen. But yeah, in Portugal, I'm based in Lisbon. So you get the city vibe, but it's like a big village. And then mm. you can get to the beach in like 20 minutes on a train. Well, one of many beaches. It's like hard to not find a beach nearby, which is, I mean, that was what I wanted. I wanted to be closer to nature. So after Mexico and Guatemala mm. and Eat, Pray, Love, when did you <laughs> reach a stopping point with that adventure and said, okay, I'm going to go back to real life, quote unquote. So I think I came back like January 1st. I think it took me like a month before I even went down to Oxford Street, which is like the busiest street in uh, London. I remember that being like shocked to the senses of like, mm. my God, consumerism is like ever. It was just like this mm-hmm. very visceral reaction. I like hadn't even unpacked my room. I think I was living in yoga pants, like continuous, like just living <laughs> in the same clothes I'd been wearing when I was traveling. I started teaching. That was what I, at the time, thought I wanted. But in London, it's very competitive, so it felt a bit mm. unyogic the way you had to get in. And you needed to invest a lot of time and money going to studios to then get on the cover list and then maybe become a regular teacher. So mm. it was an uphill battle. I started actually by teaching corporates, including NBC. That was huh. like pretty cool, but Huge. it was a very different vibe teaching in like a press conference room. (laughs) It wasn't really what I had imagined. But at the same time, arguably, people in corporate jobs are maybe the people who need it the most. Mm -hmm. And then I think after six months, I was like, okay, like, I'm really scraping by financially. So I think it's time to maybe look into at least a part time something else. The MD of this agency reached out to me on LinkedIn. I think he was looking for Scandinavian people specifically with PR skills, because he runs an agency servicing Nordic startups. And reached out to me, invited me for an interview. I said I was only available part-time. And he's like, we've never done that before, but let's talk. 
they were open to trialing it. So I came in working three days a week as like a senior consultant. So I supported different teams depending on what was needed and landing bigger features. I was working with these very successful startups with like millions in funding and seeing how PR plays that role and how critical it really is to the startup process. PR, of course, can be used to grow your business in terms of sales. It can make help you sell more, but it can also really help establish that credibility that investors are looking for. Maybe when you're not at a point where you can show numbers, but the fact that a journalist is taking the time to write about you, that goes a long way too. And then at the same time, I had an old journalist friend approach me because she was launching the first ever feminist travel publication. Really cool, still exists, Unearth Women. It's an amazing publication. She'd been working in the travel industry for a long time and had really seen a lot of the sexism firsthand in in the travel industry and felt like there was this need Mm. to carve out a space both to support women in the travel industry, but also to talk about like solo traveling and also really unearthing stories about women in different parts of the world. She did like feminist city guides. I wrote a feminist city guide about Copenhagen, like how you can support women-owned businesses when you travel. And that was really fun. And having that contrast of being like, okay, I'm working with these startups. Most of them I can get excited about, some of them not so much. And then this feminist travel publication where I was like doing work for her didn't feel like work. It was mm. I landed pieces so much easier. I landed like the New York Times and Forbes and like without wow. having to do and I'm like, hey, it really showed me that there's a pattern here that when I'm working for a company and people that I think are doing good in the world and are really making an impact and especially mm. like social impact, I think is what really lights me up then I also light up and that makes me even better at what I do. So that was an aha moment to notice the contrast. At the time I'd been like, hey, well, I'll dip back into PR because that's just, I mean, I needed to pay bills. And then Mm. when I compared it with that experience, like, oh, actually, maybe there's something here. And then I like having tried to teach yoga full time, I realized, okay, I don't think teaching yoga full time is enough for me. And that's not to say that teaching isn't an amazing thing. I think it is an incredible gift to the world. And I think we can only benefit from having more people practicing yoga and being conscious Mm. about how they live their lives. But I just felt like my PR skills is a way for me to make a bigger impact. I love that. And I can definitely relate to that feeling of utilizing your sort of corporate skills to further missions that you care about. It's so powerful to do that. And I think like having that why behind it, like having that purpose just makes you show up in a different way. I really strongly believe that if everyone could connect to a purpose, Mm -hmm. like the world would be a better place. I think we all have something that lights us up and I don't think it's in our nature to just sit back and do nothing. Like we want Mm -hmm. to create, we want to impact. Yeah. And I think hearing your story too, it shows that it takes work to find that path for yourself, right? Like you can climb that corporate ladder and some people do get fulfillment out of that. But to find your own path and to really customize it, you have to take the time mm-hmm. to do that inner work and, and try different things and really figure out what it is for yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. And be willing to take the mm-hmm. risk and see what happens. Right. So be conscious PR, where mm-hmm. you've landed, the business you've created. Can you talk a bit about how you work with clients? Yeah, definitely. So my main focus is in PR coaching. I work with people one-on-one to really empower them to do their own PR because PR is is such a cost-effective way to promote your business, especially when you're early stage, when you don't have budget. And like, there are so many 
um, misconceptions about PR that it's something that's expensive or it's something you need mm. a lot of time to do. But if you're in the beginning, a little can really go a long way and it is 100% free to reach out to a journalist. And it's free to pitch yourself to a brand. It's free to pitch yourself for a podcast or a speaking opportunity. And it's just people not realizing that these things are available to them. The key is just to understand how it works. Like how can you position yourself as a resource, as an expert? I have a structure that I take everyone through from the beginning is clarity, getting clear on your key messages, your objectives, because objective is really important. You really need to have a strategy in order for it to be worth your time. So getting clear on your target audience, your key messages, stuff like that. And then we go into confidence, which is looking at how do you actually pitch someone? How do you actually interview and like practicing that? getting my feedback as we go and, and trying to pitch as many people as possible. And then going into the final pillars, visibility. So once you've landed the piece of press or the podcast opportunity, how do you maximize it? How do you, mm. you know, use it in your marketing? How do you use it with investors? How do you stay visible? I would love to dive a little deeper and unpack each one of those pillars. So first you busted a myth for us that mm -hmm. PR doesn't have to cost a lot of money, which I think a lot of people think it does because you have to hire a PR person or agency, Yeah. but you're saying that you can actually do it yourself. Mm-hmm. So at what stage of a business do you recommend that someone start going for PR? What do you need to have in place before doing all that? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, I think there are many PRs of different answers to this question. And I've seen a lot of PRs say, oh, you don't need a product or service to land press. And it's that's true. But my question would be, why are you doing it then? So I always come back to that why question of really establishing the objective. You need to know what you want to get out of PR before you do it. And in order to know what you want to get out of PR, you also need to have an, an established enough business where you're clear on what you're offering, whether it's a service, whether it's a product, and you have a clear set of business goals that the PR is going to come in and support. And you mm -hmm. know what you want to be known for. That can be the deal breaker. I think if you're too early stage where you're still figuring out what your business model is. And the reason for that is not because you can't land press, but it's because once you go one way and you begin building one narrative, you then change it, it's much harder to change it through the press if they already have one idea of who you are. It's just mm. more work for you. Obviously it's natural to evolve as a business, but if you decide to go in a completely different direction, it becomes a little bit trickier and it's just unnecessary work for you really. So once you have your business direction and your strategy in place, how do you go about finding the right journalists and the right people to reach out to? So the key is always looking at your target audience, not only what do they consume, but also what do they trust? What outlets do they trust? And the reason I say that is because there are maybe some people who don't read Forbes, but if you as a brand say, Hey, I was featured in Forbes that's still going to build trust with them because they have that brand recognition of what Forbes mm -hmm. is. So that's where you using it in your marketing, you using it on your social channels, still leverages mm -hmm. the power of PR, even if they don't read that publication, because it's this instant credibility. If you were choosing a product and one you'd read about in Cosmo and one you'd never heard of, which one are you going to go for? You need to start by getting clear on your target audience and looking at where they are so that you can build a media list based on that. And then it's finding the right journalist. So it's not just finding the right publication or TV channel or podcast. It's also really making sure you're finding the right person so that you're not pitching a beauty story to a sports journalist, because it doesn't matter how good your pitch is, that sports journalist is not going <laughs> to change, change the topic right. that they cover. And I always advise like looking on social media, like Twitter is where all the journalists are. You can learn so much about a journalist, even just seeing their bio, having a read through their tweets, you can get an idea of what they cover. And then depending on what you're pitching, 
it's an chicken and egg thing. Like you can come up with a pitch and then find the journalist, but sometimes you'll find the journalist and you're like, oh, actually I can talk about this. But once you've found the right journalist, then you want to craft your pitch. There's many different ways that you can pitch journalists these days. It used to be sending out a, just a press release to a ton of people. There is now an expectation that you personalize. I mean, it's, you know, you just think about it from your own point of view. If you were to receive an email, that's very obviously copy paste. You just go, okay, you didn't even really bother to check in where it's like when you get those cold pitching DMs yep. and you're like, right. <laughs> and like you want to be a brand ambassador and you're like, I don't even, what feel- makes you think I <laughs> like this product? Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's just like taking that time to research the journalists a little bit and get to know the kinds of things that they cover and also make sure that they're a good fit, right? Also to make sure that you're not pitching a super conservative journalist. If you're going to talk about like abortion rights or something, ultimately you want to have a positive piece of press really the research stage is is the most important, I think, when it comes to pitching journalists. It helps you understand how the media is working and how they cover current events. You have to learn through that process. Mm -hmm. What makes a story interesting? What are they looking for? Do you recommend being on Twitter, engaging directly with these journalists, or is it enough to research their work and then reach out cold by email? Mm, I think it's both. You don't have to tweet every single journalist. But I think it does help to have a Twitter account. I don't think you need to necessarily have an active strategy where you post all the time and Mm -hmm. your following and stuff like that doesn't really matter. It's just, there's a lot of journalists who post requests on there for sources. They're like, Hey, I'm Mm -hmm. writing a piece about sexual health and I'm looking for women over 40 who have blah, blah, blah experience. Then you can get in touch with them straight through Twitter, or maybe they'll share their email there if it's not in their bio already. And then it's also a great place for you to build a relationship a little bit through social by once you've been featured, sharing the feature and tagging them because mm-hmm. if it's digital, they are remunerated also or incentivized at least to get clicks. So mm-hmm. if you're helping share the article right. and even if you share their other articles, you just begin to build a bit of a relationship and, and they can then go look on your profile and see who you are and then maybe gotcha. they direct to your website, but it serves as a little bit of a resume or kind of portfolio. Got it. Okay. And so then in terms of actually reaching out, how do I pitch when I'm not necessarily an expert? What are some possible angles or topics you can pitch other than say, like, I'm the expert that studied this phenomena for 10 That's also a really great question. And it comes up all the time where I have clients or potential clients are like, oh, but I'm not an expert. And it's like, there's some kind of hesitation in adopting that title of I'm an expert. The way that journalists look at it is that you're an expert on your experience, right? So journalists are, are just looking from sto- for stories from people. So yes, mm. you know, if it's business, it's going to be business people who then seem like they're in this pedestal of being big experts. But They're also writing like life stories. Like right now, for example, in the UK, they're doing the vaccine rollout and now thing for the real, the younger generation. So there's lots of journalists who are like, Mm. we're looking to speak to under 25s about how you feel about this because they are the experts on that. Someone who is a medical professional, like they are not going to be an expert on that unless they then work with people under 25 who are getting vaccinated. And that's why one of the questions that I ask my clients when we're getting clear on messaging is, Not only what are you an expert on from your career, but what life experiences have you had that are relevant, Mm. right? Like you can use me as an example, like I'm a PR person, so you could make it seem like I could only talk about PR, but I've also lived abroad. I've also started a business during a pandemic. There's all these things Mm. that I can talk about that kind of will relate back that allow me to speak to multiple different journalists on different publications, coming at it from different angles that will then build a bigger narrative Mm. around me and showcase more of who I am. 
So that's what I would advise people get in touch with. What are the things that you're passionate about? What are the things that you've experienced that you can speak to? And then finding the intersection of how are they relevant to what you do? Right. And even for a business, there's different conversations out there that aren't related to what you're selling that you probably want to be a part of Mm -hmm. and that your target audience is a part of. Yeah, exactly. Like businesses that maybe never considered mental health as an important topic. Now it's it's mm-hmm. an important topic for ev- any kind of business. Even if you're not a certified psychologist or therapist, you can still share mental health. Like as a yoga practitioner, I can share mental health advice from a yoga point of view. You're not trying to be someone that you're not, but it's just acknowledging that you do have knowledge, that we all have insights. And that's also why I really want to empower more heart-led, impact-driven, conscious entrepreneurs to claim that title. I guess I am an expert because I think we need more conscious people contributing to the media narrative Mm. and not just leaving it up to the, what we, you know, call the experts. Can you share a few of the examples of the conscious entrepreneurs that you have worked with and what kind of growth you've helped them achieve? Yeah, definitely. So one client I started working with last year, she is building the first ever web app for female entrepreneurs to support them to succeed. She had been working as an entrepreneur for 17 years, working with entrepreneurs and saw like firsthand that there's a need for tailored support for female entrepreneurs. She came to me because she was launching a crowdfunding campaign and she needed to raise the crowd. So the challenge there was like, okay, we're going to need to get you noticed, raise your profile without actually having a tangible product. But she had done a lot of research into the mental health of female entrepreneurs and looked at how that is one of the barriers to our success and had all these amazing numbers. So our tactic was using PR to educate people on the issue to really Mm. spotlight the need for tailored support. Like we have an increased risk of mental health issues and there's a gender wage gap and there's like all these things that, that challenge us specifically and just highlighting the issue so that there then could be enough of an incentive to then invest in the app. And she was able to get into Forbes, which was like the biggest win really like validate not only her research, but also validate that this is really something that's needed. And she appeared in national newspapers in Canada. She's a Canadian entrepreneur, did some broadcast stuff as well, and then ran a really successful crowdfunding campaign as a result. And now the app is in development and she's attracted some new investors. So it really helped her get to the next level of making it a reality. And then another client of mine who just smashed it, like she's like a PR rock star. She runs the Yeah Yoga Co., which is a corporate agency offering yoga and meditation classes for offices. And she knew that there was a demand for this, but was reluctant to to really own her expertise as a yoga teacher because she was very conscious of the issues in the Western world around yoga, about it being very white, thin, privileged, and, and she didn't want to contribute to that. But at the same time, she wanted to grow her yoga business and by working together and really positioning her where she needed to be, staying in her lane, but still also really embracing the, the, the expertise that she does have, like what, what it is that she wants to speak to and making that really clear is really unlock something for her because as a result, she started getting much more active on social media as well, sharing her opinions and calling out like when she saw a fat big ad, when she saw like contortionists, claiming that what they're doing is yoga, really calling out how some of these practices alienate people from yoga and you don't have to look a certain way or be 
like specifically abled in certain ways in order to do yoga that it mm-hmm. is accessible to everyone and that it's not just a physical practice that was really like the heart mm. of the message she went viral after doing one of one of these posts and was picked up by cosmopolitan it was a stomach taming yoga pants and she was like stomachs don't need to be tamed it's <laughs> <laughs> like what who came up with that copy and then it went viral into Yahoo and Mirror Online and like all these different publications. I think it was like hundreds of millions of readers if you were to add up all the readership. And that was like while we were still working together and we were still practicing the pitching and stuff like that. That just really showed her that there's a real appetite for people in this space to call out the bullshit. <laughs> and then also she's become a go-to expert for Business Insider. And she was invited to counsel the UK government on a weight loss campaign. Oh my goodness. This is like a little like, like whistleblower for toxic diet wow. culture messaging. In my experience, you need to proactively always go out and pitch yourself. Mm-hmm. But she had a lot of this come to her. So it was right from all the press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She has a very important message and it clearly struck a chord. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's just really awesome That's- seeing someone who is so conscious about what she does. And she also make sure to pass the mic when she's not the right expert for it. It's so cool to hear you talk about it and how you light up talking about her because (laughs) I can clearly see that you've really found this path that fulfills you, that Mm -hmm. makes use of your strengths and you're working with people that you want to work with. I I think I had a moment the other day too. I had some like new discovery calls with new potential clients and I just was lit up after. I'm like, I just get to meet the coolest people. It's an honor to be able to be part of their story. I do want to ask you about how you design your time and your calendar. Mm -hmm. Because when we last spoke, it sounded like you also put a lot of work into that and intention into how you work. So I'd love to hear some of the like systems and tools that you've put in place to make sure you stay sane. Mm -hmm. I love that I get to talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) We need to talk about this more. Maybe the first thing I'll start by saying is that it's an ongoing experiment that don't Mm -hmm. feel like you need to be like, this is the way it needs to be. So many of the articles that are like this, this is the magic morning formula. And it's Mm. like, we change people. (laughs) Like just the same way they don't want to eat the same thing all the time. You also like want to have a different (laughs) experience. So I don't really like routine. I very much like to go with the flow and, and have open space in my schedule. But I also am the kind of person who needs structure and deadlines in place to get things done. So I set deadlines for myself. I put certain structures in place. Like I typically only have my calendar open for calls or interviews a couple days a week, depending on what I've gone on. So I can section off my days and be more intentional with my energy too. Cause I know that mm. if I have an afternoon of calls, trying to squeeze in work in between those calls, it's just not going to be a productive use of my time. I'm very intentional with my energy. I found that by, by structuring my schedule that way, that really seems to help because then I know, okay, I have an afternoon of calls, but that's all I need to focus on. And I can be fully present for that. I'll have another day where there's my calendar is completely closed and it's just deep work. Mm-hmm. So I find that that really works well for me and allowing space in my days. So not trying to pack too much in because if I feel like, okay, I want to get outside. I want to do a yoga practice that I can go with that flow or if like inspiration strikes and I have like a great idea. Like I find that happens in that space. If I'm just doing, I, I can get that you can get very caught up in that and time just seems to go by without any intention. 
I do always at the beginning of every week sit down and map out my week. So like, hey, this is my to-do list. Instead of just having that to-do list carry over every day, which is overwhelming and makes you feel like you never get anything done, is hey, look at my calendar, look at the when I have calls and slot it in, and then it feels much more manageable. And then Mondays, I actually look forward to them because I, like I don't take calls on Mondays. Like Mondays are really for setting everything up. I have one week on with coaching and one week off. And I find that it works well for my clients because they get to have space to implement as entrepreneurs, busy entrepreneurs, but I purposely started them on the same schedule so that I'm also not just always in coaching mode. I'm also able to look at my internal practices and evolve my coaching program and market myself and do my own PR and all that kind of stuff in a way that's sustainable. I think if, if you can do that, or even if it's just that you can section off your days for when you do calls and when you don't, like creating that space of not always being available, like I think it just does something mentally. You feel like you're more able to then focus on other things. Another thing is that I've discovered I really like having slow mornings. Like I don't want to just roll out of bed and have coffee and sit down at the computer. Like I'd like to mm -hmm. create a separation between the two and allowing that. Cause I think initially I was like, I was judging myself for it. Cause again, it doesn't fit with that idea of what success looks like or what you're supposed to do or what entrepreneurs mm -hmm. are supposed to do. But again, my energy is much better. I feel like I'm able to be more present. I have more intention with how I carry my day and I set myself up for success. Like I can meditate. I always like that is a non-negotiable, even if it's just five mm. minutes. And I know a lot of people say that it can be challenging to meditate, especially if you share a space or it's loud. So I just put in some music, like usually something with a healing frequency. I don't know if it actually does anything, but like, <laughs> why not? And then if I feel like I need a bit more support, I don't know if you've ever heard of EFT, um, emotional freedom. It's also known as tapping. It's a um, energetic acupressure. So you tap on these different okay. points in the body huh. and you can tap on anything. Like you can go really deep and work through like emotional pain, but it's really a way to mm. release and rewire your brain. If you are feeling self-doubt, you can tap through it. If you're feeling some fear around doing something new, you can tap through it. And you can also just tap on having a good day. So I do that sometimes. That's my morning. And then usually a, either a yoga practice then or later in the day. Those are Sounds like you've been very intentional about bucketing your times. And I love your yogic practices too. I had heard of tapping, mm. but no one's ever explained it to me. So thank you. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Go tap with Brad. Tap with Brad. He's on YouTube. He's like okay. a total dad and he's so sweet. And he has a ta he has literally a video for anything. All right. I'm going to find him after this. <laughs> he's great. And I guess the only other thing that I can share that I do more like intentional is tracking my menstrual cycle. It is a way to harness your hormones and the power of your hormones in different parts of your cycle. Because apparently in your autumn and winter, your intuition is heightened. They've done studies to show that your intuition is really strong at those points. Whereas in like your spring, summer, that's when you're more extroverted naturally and social. And that's when it's a great time to do speaking gigs and doing podcasts mm. and maybe have like new client meetings and networking and stuff like that. And it's not that you have to only be social when you're meant to be social hormonally, but it's just to be aware that has really helped when someone is coming to me and being like, what date? And you can, you're flexible. It's like, well, why not give myself the best possible chance at excelling at this? Mm. by placing it in my summer as opposed to doing it in my winter when I know I'm going to be run down. And then also just allows you to have a little bit more compassion for yourself too. To be like, mm. okay, like it's natural that the energy shifts throughout the cycle. So when you're in your winter, it's not the time to be super productive, but then you can adjust for that and you can take advantage of when you mm. are going to be more productive. And it's going to be different for everyone too. 
When you say summer, winter, do you mean like December versus July? Or do you mean like within your monthly moon cycle? Oh, it's within the cycle. So it's that, that's the oh, idea. Yeah, like okay. I didn't know it was called that. Yeah, oh, yeah, no, I think very it's been cool. really helpful. Like, cause it, it's been named that way to mimic, you can get an idea of the energy, right? Like in the summer mm-hmm. is when you're like, ah, that's when you're, yeah. when you're like, out, like see me, yes. I want to have fun. <laughs> I want to be like social and you're naturally going to be extroverted. And, and then your winter, you want to retreat, you want to rest, mm-hmm. you want to not do much. Take a nap. Yes, discovering for yourself, like how long each phase of the cycle is for you. For me, it's been really supportive. The way to start is just by starting on the day one is the first day of your period. So then you can literally just write it down like what day one, day two, and you just discover how long it is. And then you can even just write down mm. one word every day of how you feel. And then you can begin to see mm. the pattern. That's a really simple way oh. to kind of get started. Ooh, I like that. And the book I read, yeah, if, very if anyone's interested, is Period Power by Maisie Hill. We'll put that in the show notes. No, I love this calendar idea. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been amazing hearing your story and hearing some of your tips about not only PR, but how you structure your life and things like period tracking. (laughs) (laughs) This has been amazing. Thank you. No, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you got out of this episode. Take a picture of where you're listening from and tag me on a story at Inside Out with Jane. I'll be back here next Tuesday. And in the meantime, chat with you online. Bye.